So, last week we uh, dipped our toe into John 3.16, the most famous <laughs> verse probably in the Bible, at least among evangelicals. So, um, that verse, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave, that's right Rustin, his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So I say dipped our toe because we really only focused last week on the motive, God's motive in granting eternal life in his son to all who believe and that motive was love. Good. I don't know if anybody said it or not but I said it. Yeah. God so loved the world. That's why he did it. That's what's driving him. That's what motivated him to do that. A believer in Christ always needs to cling to the love of God. God's God's love gives us through the suffering of his beloved son eternal life. There's great comfort there. There's a place to rest your soul right there. That's the greatest gift. So we have to always keep the reality of eternal life in view because that's what he's granted us. You know this world has many sorrows, right? And we we share them in prayer requests all the time, many injustices unrealized hopes and dreams all the time. But our life in this world, even if we live to be a hundred, is, is short. It's a, it goes by really quick. Quicker, it, the older you get, the quicker, right folks? <laughs> you older folks know what I'm talking about. But um, it, it is a very short thing. And the Bible says, in James 4.14, it says, you, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That is so true. And we never know when we're going to go. But the gift of God's son to all who believes says right there in John 3.16 we will not perish if we belong to him. We will not perish but have eternal life. So the world can't defeat us. Satan himself cannot defeat us. He can't take that away from us. Glory awaits. And eternal life is is much more than just not perishing. It is there's glory there, uh, glory beyond our understanding. Psalm 16 famously says, "In your presence, speaking to the Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever." And that's that's eternal life. Paul says in Romans 8:18, "I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory." that is to be revealed to us. Doesn't compare. Glory has more weight than all the earthly suffering you might endure. It has more substance. It's, it's going to last forever. That's why. They don't compare because glory is forever and no matter what you're dealing with in this life it's short. It's short. So we can be confident about this because God's love is set upon us and brings us eternal life. So rest in that. Rest in that. His love is everlasting. You're not saved by a formula, you know. Do, do this thing, do this ritual. It's God's love that saves us. And all you have to do is put your faith in his son. That's, that's what it's all about. Sometimes people ask me if I ever doubt. I don't think really I ever entertain doubts about Christ. I, I really don't because he's just too wonderful not to believe in. I mean who could have invented him? I mean my mind would immediately go there. So who invented him? Well he's too amazing to have been an invented person so I always I don't have doubts about him. I do sometimes have doubts about me <laughs> which is a totally different 
totally different thing because I am so, I am so unworthy of God's love. So that sometimes causes me to doubt myself. But what does it say right there? Whoever believes in him, and I do believe in him, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So those words tell me that I can rest my soul in Jesus. And that's a safe place for me. I do believe, so I will not be judged. And I have to believe that because that's God's promise to me. So having dipped our toe in the water of God's great love, let's wait a little deeper now into John 3.16 and kind of move through these other verses following here. One thing we didn't talk about last time was the word world. God so loved the world, right? I think we forget how radical that is, how profound that is. God's love has never been restricted to one people or one nation. And I know the whole Old Testament's all about God calling Abraham and Israel coming forth from Abraham. But if you read your Bible, you know why God called Abraham and Israel, right? Israel was to be a channel of God's revelation to the world. And what did God promise Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, very beginning, way, way back. Why did God promise him? In your seed from one of your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's always been the scriptural view. That's always where everything is going in scripture. And that is completely, completely unique. You know, all the other peoples in the world back then and for almost ever believed that their, their gods were over them. And if you lived in another country or whatever, your gods were over you. And when they were at war with each other, their gods were fighting and my God was stronger than yours. So we won that kind of thing, you know, is tribal, tribalism. But the Bible says the Lord is over everything. He created all things. He all nations. The nations are a drop in the bucket to him. All the nations of the earth. That's how the Bible actually describes it. There are no other gods. God is the God of all people. And so that goes all the way back to in you the families of the earth will be blessed to Abraham. All the families. All the families. Right from the beginning. God's love was directed at all peoples. And of course if you go to the other end of the Bible you you can see that in Genesis chapter 12 there. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, right at the end of that, it says um, part of that book, he, he's seeing a multitude in heaven, the apostle John, same guy that wrote this book. He said, I saw a great multitude which no one could count from every nation. I saw a great multitude from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God's always been interested in peopling heaven with all kinds of people from every group. So Christianity is not a Western religion, you know. Of course, it started in the Near East, not, not Europe. But obviously because of the Roman Empire and the Peace of Rome and all of that and the Holy Land was part of the Roman Empire, obviously it settled pretty easily in, in a westerly direction. Uh, part of the peace of Rome and uh, all of that. But Christianity was very strong outside of the Roman Empire in the early, early years. Very strong in Persia, interestingly enough. I just read an article recently about something we don't hear about very often is the massive persecution against Christians, early Christians in, in Persia, which is sort of an interesting subject I didn't know much about. But you know, I had, a, I had a, when I was in seminary, you have to take a missions class, all about missionaries, you know. And I had a Chinese missionary professor, Dr. Lao. And he was, he was great. But he had this theory. And uh, he, he said, 
the reason God had Christianity kind of settle towards Europe and you know the Roman Empire there was because he knew that Europeans had itchy feet I think is the way he put it. In other words they're goers and he, and he was from China he said China absorbs other things you know you go to China and you get absorbed into China but Europeans want to go and they did right they went and, and God knew of course they had this desire and that they would and a lot of interesting geographical factors and all other kinds of things led Europeans to literally send, build empires all over the world and guess what Christianity followed those empires right all that empire building now the empire builders didn't always like Christians going after them follow missionaries following what they were doing sometimes they allowed it but a lot of times they didn't like it because it just upset the natives and we're exploiting the natives we don't want them upset right so um, that kind of a thing so but Christians would follow and uh, especially English missionary societies followed the British Empire everywhere and uh, so that's where the gospel went to China the gospel went to, to India and all those kind of places like that Africa um, some were real pioneers who never um, to people that never heard the gospel at all and uh, you know I've been to China and I've been in the underground church there and they still revere Hudson Taylor there the, the guy that really brought China uh, the gospel to inland China and they still talk about him They've, even their little hymn books have his picture on the back this, this English guy you know because they're, they're grateful that he was so courageous to bring the gospel to them that's a pretty cool thing you know if you think about it so they remember there were even I think mainly German um, Moravian Christians who sold themselves into slavery to go to the West Indies as slaves to minister to Africans that were working the plantations in the West Indies I mean now that's commitment to the gospel of course they didn't live very long but they did do that so um, this going out idea following the European conquest was that's it. Now, l now look at Western Europe today. Christianity is almost gone. Almost gone. It's on life support. You know, you, you feel for a pulse in there and you can't find one, right? It's, it's like right at the end. In fact, church attendance in England, which was the great sending of missionaries country, probably the most sent, uh, sending country. Church, church going today there, 5%. 6% something like that and those are a lot of churches that don't preach the gospel too and of course America always follows Europe <laughs> we're just decades behind usually but um, that's starting to happen here too so but in other parts of the world because God loves all peoples and he's going to populate heaven with all peoples maybe he's collected enough Englishmen I don't know but um, <laughs> I'm sure he still loves the English and trying to reach them we, we, we have a missionary there too we support but um, the gospel's booming. So you talk about China, there's more believing Christians in China than in the United States numerically now. It's like a, over a hundred million and I've met some of them so I've been there so I know I know the passion that they have to share the gospel enduring persecution because what they do is totally illegal. So um, Persia, Iran has one of the fastest growing churches in the world right now. Iran. Yeah. God doesn't let ideologies and empires and all that stuff stop him from doing what he wants to do and he wants to populate heaven with all kinds of people. So the spirit moves where he wills. The gospel goes out um, even more so as history is drawing to a close. God is gathering in people from all over the world. God loves the world. So he gave. 
he gave his son to save many diverse people. So when it says God so loved the world, it really means that. It really means that. Okay, let's, uh, let's take it from here and start following, jo- following John's teaching here. Because does, he doesn't end at verse 16 in John chapter 3. He's got more to say. Some very important things to say, in fact. So last week we talked about how most Bible scholars believe that John 3.15 is the end of the discussion Jesus is having with Nicodemus. We mentioned that last time. And verse 16 and following are John's comments on the discussion. Now there are some scholars, in fact some very good ones that say, no it's all Jesus talking. So it doesn't matter one way or the other. I personally go with the, it's probably John because it sounds just like John starting at verse 16 and following. It, it writes, having taught through 1 John not that long ago, you know, we all did that together. It was like, it's like, oh yeah, there's John. He's it's simple language, expressing big ideas, taking keywords and grouping them together, uh, repeating them a lot. And that's exactly what you're going to see from John 3, 16 through 21 there. Um, this grouping of key words, there's four key words, world he uses five times in just a few verses, believe four times, judge or judgment four times, light five times. So he just likes to repeat those key words so it just sticks in your head. That's classic John style. So I think Jesus stopped talking in verse 15 and John is commenting on what he said. But having told us that God loves the world so much he gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Having told us that now he is going to expand on those words. So what follows verse 16 is really important to understand the biblical view of man. Okay? You could call this biblical anthropology if you want to give a big name to it. But why are humans the way they are? Why are we wonderful and why are we wicked? And this is going to focus on the wicked side. But um, human beings are inherently sinful. I mean, we just are. I would ask you to raise your hand if you're not a sinner, but some wise guy will <laughs> probably raise his hand. So I won't ask, but you, you know in your heart that you are not everything you want to be and that you've done some pretty miserable things in your life. Maybe today, maybe yesterday, right? So sometimes we forget um, the biblical view of man. And when we look at it, it really helps us remember um, being an unbeliever and what their thinking processes are and what's motivating them and what's driving them. Because we were all there once. So unless you came to Christ at five, you might not have had a deep experience of your wickedness, but you were wicked and you needed Christ too. But um, human beings are not neutral. This is a Christian anthropology, okay? We aren't blank slates. We're not born blank slates and anybody can write on this anything they want. And our life experiences just uh, are, are just part of that. Of course, we all have unique experiences, but we are born to a fallen race fallen from grace if you want to use that language fallen from God we joined the other side so there was already a devil and there was already a tension between uh, obviously tensions a pretty war between God and and Satan and Satan's a nothing compared to God of course he's just a little angel but um, he had his thing going and God created humanity actually to take this world for God and we joined the other side so Satan tempted Adam and Eve. They fell and their children have all been born in that state. So rebellion against God is the natural state of human beings. Our hearts are darkened and we have a natural preference for sin over righteousness. Now by sin I mean sin. So you can say well I'm a good guy. 
yeah, but you, you sin. You know, a, a good guy is nice. It's, it's nice is nice, but nice is not righteousness, right? Being polite and kind and those kind of things. That's great. That's wonderful. But you still sin and you know it. Um, that's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, who was the leader of Israel, a theologian, one of the leaders of the religious system of Israel, said, you must be born again. That's, that's what happens in the first part of chapter three. And he tells him it three times. You must be born again. Every once born man is a sinner and the wages of sin is death. And so that is hanging over you. Verse 17. God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. So the reason Jesus came the first time is to save the world. To bring the good news that God's love has moved him moved God to send a perfect savior into the world. And we call him savior Jesus. Not too many people call him judge Jesus. Jesus my wonderful judge. That's not how people usually think. Now is Jesus going to judge the world? Yes. But that's not why he came the first time. That's not why he was incarnate. To judge the world. He did not come to judge the world. John will tell us later about Jesus as the judge of the world. But in fact in chapter 5 Jesus says all judgment has been given to him by the father. So he is the judge. And that's on God's calendar. It's going to happen. There's going to be an accounting a reckoning. The wages of sin will be paid out. The whole world system as we know it full of greed and scheming and deception is going to be overthrown by Christ. The worship of self will be overthrown. Judgment is coming. But when Jesus came on the public scene about AD 30 or so, he came to save. He came to save. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. And if you're lost, he came for you. He is the love of God manifest in a person, in a human being. The very embodiment of the love of God. That's who Jesus is. So God is still a judge. But, and Jesus will be a key part of his judgment. But here in our text today. What we're looking at. He comes as the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 16 says. Whoever believes in him will not perish. But have eternal life. And verse 18 affirms that as well. It says he who believes in him. Is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. That's a really interesting expression. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So there's a big contrast there. C.S. Lewis called it the great divorce. All of humanity falls into the not judged or judged category. How do you get in the not judged category? Well I'm perfect. No that's not how you get it. Because you're not perfect. Jesus was perfect and his he laid down his life for you so that when God looks at you God sees his righteousness credited to you that's how you're not judged not because of you and you're you're so wonderful but because Christ is so wonderful and he gave his life in your place he died your death that's that's the good news that's the gospel right there so not judged and judged two kinds of people there big contrast So in verse 16 says the believer shall not perish. That word perish referring is referring to the righteous judgment of God on rebels on sinners. And the contrast in verse 18 says he who does not believe has been judged already. So verse 18 tells us that no man is saved 
unless he believes in the Son of God, the only Son of God. Nothing could be more clear than that. He who believes in him is not judged, and that's a present tense verb, believing. He who is believing, ongoing, has faith, will not be judged. He who is not believing, that's a present tense participle there. If you just go on with your unbelief and won't turn, you're judged already, he says, already. You know, I I often, many times in my life, I've had unbelievers say to me, oh, so I'm going to hell for not believing like you do? Have you ever heard that? That's so common. So you're saying I'm going to hell for not believing? No. Uh, So I always, first I say, for one thing, if I did not exist, then that doesn't change the equation. It has nothing to do with me whatsoever, one way or another. If I didn't exist, you would still be judged because you have not been reconciled to God. So it has nothing to do with what I believe. He is a righteous judge and you are condemned by your own sin. That's the facts. You're a moral blot on God's universe. Excuse me, but I have to tell you that. You are a moral blot on God's universe. So is I. All humans are. And all humans need a savior. So verse 18 tells us that if you persist in your unbelief, you are already under condemnation. It's it's hanging over you is the way to think about it, I guess. And that's because you're a sinner now, today, and you don't have the righteousness of Christ clothing you, standing for you. His blood does not plead for you. There's nothing protecting you from that judgment. You violated God's law many times. Even if you don't know God's law, if you violate your own conscience, you're judged on that. If you don't even know, if you, I've never heard of the Ten Commandments, so I've never read the Sermon on the Mount, if, if, okay. How do you feel about when somebody does something to you? Well, I don't like it. Okay, well, if you've ever done what some, that you hate people doing to you to somebody else, you're all guilty. <laughs> if you've ever done that, God will judge you on that. And you'll be condemned on that basis. So all of us are condemned by the revealed law of God or the internal moral law by which we judge other people. So we all start life under this condemnation and it is a just condemnation and a true condemnation. So God sends a savior. So since he sends a savior then our final condition when we pass from this life is did I take the savior or not? Did I hold him away or did I take him? Did I, what did I do with Jesus? And it is true that if we push the savior away and do not receive him as our sacrifice, as our king, that's just another sin adding to the account. But we're judged already. It's already hanging over us. So we don't need to reject Jesus to be condemned. We're already condemned under condemnation. You don't have to add that in. You're already condemned by your own sinfulness. You can compare it, I guess, to having like a deadly disease. There is a cure, but if you aren't interested in the cure, I don't believe in science. Uh, I don't want a cure. I'm, I, I went to the medicine man and I, w- waving feathers over it was, was just great. It worked. I'm just going to trust in that. Okay, fine. You reject an actual cure. Who's that on? Is that on the cu- That's on you, right? If you say no to the cure. For some reason, I was thinking of people on a small island with a volcano that was about to erupt. And they were all going to be destroyed. And a ship showed up at the island. And they said, the volcano's going to explode. Everybody says so. You can see it happening. You can feel it. Come here. And everybody gets on board the ship except you. <coughs> and you tell the captain of the ship, 
I've always wanted to see a volcano erupt. I, I'll never be closer than now. And yeah, but it's going to sink the whole island. You'll be burned alive and all that. And the gases will kill you. But just go. I want to see it. Okay, it's already hanging. The volcano's already there, right? It's going to happen. The judgment's hanging over you. Somebody brought you a deliverance from that, and you said no. That's how this works. It will kill you. I'm staying. <laughs> You're already doomed before the rescue ship arrived because the death is already waiting for you. It's already there. Judgment is waiting for you. So just like that, because we're wicked in the eyes of God, judgment hangs over our heads. It, and if you reject the wonderful Savior that he sent for you, it'll fall someday. So there's only two kinds of people really in the end. The one who clings to sin and doesn't want a Savior or the one who knows they have sin and repents of that and clings to the Savior that God provided. That's how, that's how the reality of the world is. Why is it like that? Hey, I don't make up the rules. This is the world we, we live in. You cannot be a, a great person without sin. You can't do it on your own. So why would anybody choose sin over the Savior? That just seems like a completely foolish thing to do. Why not get on that boat? I mean, is it really worth seeing the volcano? So the why question, why would people choose sin over a Savior? Why would they choose to stand before God without repentance and without a Savior when he's offered a Savior? Well, John will use his next word to answer that question, the why question. And the word is light. And he uses it five times. Like I said, he just kind of sprinkles light all over here. So Christ is the light of the world. He was the best and wisest person who ever lived, obviously. But much more than that, he was the pure, perfect creator of the universe, become man. God literally taking the punishment he's going to put on human beings on himself for us. That's why it's too good not to be true. Because nobody have, has ever thought of a more beautiful idea than that. And then Jesus is the greatest person that ever lived by far. So put all that together and you have to believe. I can't even, I can't even escape believing that. But in him we clearly see God's great love for mankind. As well as our failure. Measure yourself by Jesus. So he took that perfect life that he lived and he offered it as a sacrifice to remove the judgment of God from hanging over us. He took it on himself. So no higher goodness than that. God propitiating his own wrath. God satisfying his own justice. God taking the punishment I deserve. There's no greater idea that's ever entered a human mind than that. So how can we say no to him? How can we resist? Why do we resist? Why would anybody choose sin over the Savior? It has to do with love. This time not God's love but what we love. That's what it has to do with. Verse 19. Here's the thing. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world. But men loved darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So God's love is perfect. His goodness is perfect. He is pure light and we are darkness. 
and our love is for the wrong things. We love sin more than we love God or even the salvation that God offers. Men love darkness rather than light. That is one of the great truths of the world that men love darkness rather than light. It's not exactly a surprise either. I was a history major. I love reading history and you know what? Human beings are awful all through history and they're not any better today than they ever were. All of history confirms that men love darkness rather than light. All great literature confirms that men love darkness instead of light. What are the great books of the world? And I don't mean Curious George. I mean the great books of the world. The great literature. Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, all of that. They all see the wickedness of human life. The wickedness of men. The corruption of man. They all testify to that. Corruption infests everything. Now I'm a big picture guy so sometimes I like to think about the big picture of things. Look at government. Look at big business. Look at academia. Look at the entertainment industry. Are those sources of great light and goodness? Or is there just greed and perversion and corruption and using people? Darkness is prevalent in all of those things. And think of the ideologies, the failure of ideologies. You know the French Revolution? Liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? And they started slaughtering thousands of people. And then they started slaughtering each other, all the revolutionaries that were going to bring about liberty and equality and brotherhood. The big watchwords. This is what it's all about. And of course they failed miserably. And that led to Napoleon. Look at communism. Marxism and its followers said the evil of the world was capitalism. Change the structures of society they said. Eliminate private property and we'll all be equal in a worker's paradise. Because they didn't believe that man was fundamentally evil. And they didn't look at their own evil when they started making that. So then what shows up? Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Castro, Daniel Ortega. You just go down the whole list. Big, big dictators and little dictators. Tens of millions of people killed by their own governments. Unimaginable numbers of people. Oppression and suffering on a scale that nothing like it has ever happened. And that was in the 20th century, the age of enlightenment, right? But the leaders, the leaders lived like wealthy capitalists, Marxist leaders, and they still do because they're corrupt. They're internally corrupt. Well, they say in animal farms, some pigs are more equal than others. You see, you see that men love darkness and big things, the big idea, ideas and movements and things they're going to try to do efforts to remake man and, and build new societies without God and all that's going on right now. It's even going on in our culture. There's quite a movement and the similar ideas. And it's just a mess. A horrible mess. But I want you to also think about the small things because that's where we actually live. I like to think about big <coughs> things but it's really important to look at petty selfishness chasing after vain desires using other people lying 
uh, manipulating things, the small hatreds, the resentments, the, the hurts we cause each other over time, all the time. Most of the miseries that we inflict in daily life come from what the Apostle Paul called the deeds of the flesh. That's what he calls it. They're found in Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. I'll, I'll list them for you. I'm sure you want to hear them. <laughs> the deeds of the flesh, he said, are evident. That's why they're in all great literature in history. They're evident. Which are immorality, that's sexual immorality. Porneia is actually the word. We get our word porn from that. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Sorcery is a really interesting word. Pharmakia. Hear, heard about big pharma? So that's taking drugs. That's using drugs to have a religious experience. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's normal humanity. That's daily humanity. Regular people idolizing pleasure of any kind finding satisfaction in exalting themselves over other people even quietly in their own hearts doing it even if you don't see it on the outside. They enjoy feelings of power over other people. They take pride in evil. That's human nature. That's fallen human nature. Well those are little things. Not to God they're not. Because where they come from is a heart that is opposed to him. That's, that's why judgment hangs over all of us. And Jesus suffered and died for those little things. Just as much as he died for mass murderers and big thieves and gangsters and all of that kind of stuff. He died for those things. So if men love darkness, how, are, how is a person that loves darkness, that's where their heart is committed to, that's what they're dedicated to, how do they feel about the light? Well, verse 20. Here in verse 20, John talks about the light in terms of how it exposes and reveals. It's hard not to think of cockroaches when it's in the dark and you turn the light on and there they go. They start scattering, right? The light tells us the truth about our sins. That's what the light does. Lays them right out there for us. In fact, Jesus in, in Mark chapter 7 verse 21, he gave kind of a list also like, like Paul did in, in Galatians 5. Jesus said from within, out of the heart of man, it's not external, it's internal, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, same word, porneia, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's the norm. That's humanity. But when you come to Jesus, your heart is softened and more and more you see those very things in yourself you know when you become a Christian you become a worse sinner just on the score of recognizing your sinfulness, right? Isn't that true? You just become aware of them because before you thought they were, you know, I've got these problems, I've got some foibles. Foibles, I love that word, it sounds so small. It's really small, right? A foible. Or that's just my personality, right? Maybe we think, I'm no worse than anybody else. I've heard people say that. Or, what, or here's a great one. Well, I'm no saint, but I'm a lot better than just about everybody I know. That's, that's pretty, uh, people actually feel that way on the inside. 
And that pride, that pride causes resentment against the light because the light will blow that whole thing apart. The light will shine inside and expose all of those things. And the Lord Jesus is the light. So Jesus exposes sin for what it actually is, man's worship of self. And when Jesus told that hyper-religious Pharisees that they were Hippocrates, that they were actors, what was their response? You, you're so right. That we are. We got to stop doing it. No, they, they just started planning how they were going to kill him. That's, that's what they did. Not because he was wrong. They didn't want to kill him because he was wrong. They wanted to kill him because he was right. And he was telling the truth about them. And they hated him for it. So the man who won't let God have him. That won't submit to God. He fears. He fears seeing his own sin the way it really is. Not so much what other people think, but what he thinks, what he knows about himself. He doesn't want to deal with that. He's created his own version of himself and he has reasons for his behavior and attitudes and he has justifications for his behavior and attitudes. He doesn't want to say, I am wicked. I have offended my creator. I deserve to be rejected by him completely. He, he would never, he'll never go to that place apart from God's grace, apart from being born again, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Because that's human nature. Right there. So how does he come to the light? Well first by being honest. By being willing to be measured by God's standard. And actually applying that to myself. His moral law. You can find the moral law in the Ten Commandments. But the Sermon on the Mount is an even better place. Because Jesus expands on that quite a bit. A- another really easy test is. Just compare your, you with Jesus. How you doing? <laughs> I am the most Christ-like person I know. No, that won't sell. I just try that on somebody. Just to see how they respond. <coughs> William McDonald said, I think quite wonderfully, he said, the best way to reveal the crookedness of one stick is to place a straight stick beside it. <laughs> Coming into the world as a perfect man, the Lord Jesus revealed the crookedness of all other men by comparison. So true. So true. You want to see what goodness is? It's not you, it's Jesus, so compare yourself to him, how you doing, kind of, a, that's what you should do. When somebody comes to the light, comes into the light, the light being Christ, be willing to be exposed, agreeing that he indeed is a fallen person, fallen way short of the mark, that's when you can accept the solution to your problem. That's when you have an answer. And the solution both to the problem of our real guilt, our true guilt before God, and a path towards a more righteous life, the solution is in Christ. The solution towards our guilt is in God's Son. Back up to verse 17. God did not send His Son to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He takes care of our guilt by taking care of our sin. He paid for our sin, thus forgiving us. The path towards a righteous life is following the son. He's the king of the universe. He'll be my king. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to take what he says seriously. I'm going to examine myself regularly. And follow him. I'm going to forsake the things I used to love. I'm going to start loving what he loves. And try to cast off those other things. Push them aside. So he takes care of our guilt by paying for our sin. He offers us a path to follow. Verse 21. 
He who practices but, I should say, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought, my Bible uses that get great word wrought, made in God, wrought in God. So that phrase practices the truth just means doing what God says is true and right and the believer in Christ is joyfully, although sometimes uh, horrified, uh, but we're, we know we're accountable to him and we want to be accountable to him. That's what I mean by joyfully. We conform ourselves as much as we can to whatever he reveals that we should do and be, right? We don't twist the truth to meet our desires anymore. That's what we're not going to do. We're going to shape our desires to please him. He says it, that's what we're going to do. That's, that's, that's the path after you've accepted his work for you on the cross, after you've accepted his forgiveness. And we're not alone in this, that's the best part because that's really hard to do anyway. But the Holy Spirit that God gives to every believer, he directs us to conform our ways to God's ways, to repent of our failures. He reminds us to do that, to humble ourselves. He reminds us. And if we do that, then our deeds will be, what does it say there? Wrought, made in God. That word wrought is a Greek word, ergon. We get ergonomics from it, all those, all those English words from it. It just means worked. So our works will be seen as in God, done in God. When we live by the Spirit, seeking to please God, He works things in us for good. He works a goodness in us, a righteousness in us. And our Christian virtues start to show up a little bit now and then. And then they start to grow. You know, you start as a babe, little baby, and then you start to grow in Christ. And love grows, and humility grows, and faithfulness grows. All the Christian virtues start to grow within you. And of course we're all far from perfect. We're not going to be perfect till we get there. But with him those things become real in us because he's working them in us. So we're wrought in God. These qualities. That growth will happen if we've truly trusted Christ and then the Holy Spirit will reside in us. Paul calls this the, the fruit of the Spirit. He calls it walking by the Spirit. Those are the things that transform us. Coming to the light, coming to Jesus is what makes that change a reality. And that's the difference between religion and the new birth which we talked about when we talked about Nicodemus in the first part of this chapter. Make sure you come to the light. Make sure you come to the light. But I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. You know why you don't have to be afraid? Because he loves you. He loves you so you don't have to be afraid of the light. It's for your good. Jesus said, he said, take my yoke upon you, right? It's easy. It, it fits well. It's, it's not a hard yoke. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. That's why he came. Not as the judge, but as the savior. So that when you stand before the judge, the judge will say, ah, you're in Jesus. You are forgiven. You have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord you offer us everything. Even eternal life with you. If we just step into the light of Christ. Accept his, uh, his evaluation of us. And accept his sacrifice. And follow him. We have all that you have to offer us. Help us to see. That all you want for us. Is out of your love. 
and it's glorious. We pray in his name. Amen.